Welcome to another episode of God in the Paranormal, a podcast exploring the supernatural from a biblical worldview. My name is Suzanne, and I'm joined by my co-host, John. Thank you so much for listening. There's more of gravy than grave about you. What? There's more of gravy than grave about you. Who said that? Was that a British accent? Well, it was my best attempt. Okay. So I assume that that means it was a Brit. Yes. I think that was Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Speaking to Marley's ghost. Yeah, very good. That's the quintessential ghost story. Yes. A person is mean in life and his soul gets to wander the earth in chains and punishment. And yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to spoil it for all those people who haven't read the 180 year old story yet. Or seen one of the 50 movies that they've redone the story. Yeah. It's Dickens' Christmas Carol, in case you didn't guess. But yeah, yeah, it turns out okay in the end, though. So another spoiler. Except for Marley. So an episode about ghosts and things that go bump in the night. I suppose if you're going paranormal, ghosts are the first stop. Yeah, we mentioned in the first episode that 45% of Americans are certain that ghosts are real and that they're the spirits of dead people. And 32% think that the spirits can hurt you. So our society right now is drowning in shows about ghosts and ghost hunting. It's true. I feel like everywhere I turn, there's another ghost show on Netflix or whatever. Um, And interestingly, it's hard to find a culture that doesn't have a tradition of ghosts. But whatever you call it, we seem to be enamored with poltergeists, shades, wraiths, spooks, buttes, yuri, specters, afarits, genjin gangers, um, pinagallons. Strigoy. Sorry if I pronounce some of those things. <laughs> I'm wrong. glad you I'm glad you had to read that list and not me. <laughs> um, but the point is that there's a ton of different cultures. It's really ubiquitous across the human existence, ghost stories. Yeah, it really is. You know, we we said that there were hundreds of paranormal shows. 42 of those are reality ghost shows. Wow. Uh, extreme paranormal ghost adventures, ghost hunters, ghost lab. Ghost Nation, Ghost Stories, Ghost Trackers, Ghost Hunters, Ghost Hunting With, Ghostly (laughs) Encounters, The Girly Ghost Hunters, Great British Ghost. So, yeah, it just goes on and on. I'm pretty sure some of those shows are setups. Have you noticed usually it's a team of a psychic, a tech expert, a token skeptic, and a nervous jumpy person? With night vision photography and their faces all green and their, their eyes are black and... There's always an electromagnetic field detector that they're using. Yes. I think that I would probably be the jumpy person on that show. (laughs) Yeah, I would too. Oh, okay. Um, But there's also always a backstory. Usually it's an asylum or prison where a lot of people have died. Mm -hmm. A house built over an old graveyard or a place where a spurned lover dies of a broken heart. And the ghost chasers never come away empty-handed, do they? If they don't actually see a ghost, they at least get a blurry photo or a whisper on a recording, maybe a little poltergeist action. It's pretty creepy. Yeah. Do you think that's because the hunters expect to sense something or that ghosts are just really abundant and cooperative? (laughs) I guess we're being kind of rough on ghost hunters. Well... I think I can justify my judgmentalism because I think the ones we see on TV are probably scripted, not really meant to be taken seriously. On the serious side, though, these ideas and the real experiences are changing people's worldview. We've said that before. Imagine the stereotypical preteen binge watching Mm -hmm. a whole weekend of these series. Nothing in these shows really encourages a biblical view of the afterlife or anything else, really. Yeah, I have a similar thing about binge watching a show that uh, wasn't real. It was about troll hunters and we watched the whole thing. And by the end of it, I was so convinced that trolls were really a big problem in some Scandinavian countries. Um, And then at the very end in the credits, it said that it was a mock documentary. And I was really (laughs) mad that I wasted all my time. Um, But they can be very convincing. Well, thanks Um, for telling me. I won't waste my time watching it. Yeah. frustrating but back to the ghosts there must be some psychological reason we obsess on ghosts we all sense there's something in us i guess that doesn't die when we die Mm. 
I think it's that Ecclesiastes 3.11 thing because it says God put eternity in our hearts. And I think we really do have that. We have this feeling that death isn't the end of everything. And I think even atheists feel that way too. They just kind of deny it. Yeah. It's part of being human. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose death has always been mysterious. And even as believers, most of us would probably admit some angst about what lies beyond, even though we have a glimpse of what lies beyond. Yeah. Given what scripture tells me, I think I'm okay with death itself. It's just those unpleasant moments right before it that kind (laughs) of get to me. (laughs) Yeah. According to a popular modern psychic, here's the recipe for a ghost. You ready? Yeah. A ghost is created when, at death, the spirit either sees the tunnel and turns away or refuses to acknowledge the tunnel in the first place, with the result that it gets caught outside of its body between our dimension and the dimension of the other side. That sounds kind of frustrating. It's that tunnel again that you see. I guess you're supposed to not go down the tunnel. Last time I had surgery, the surgeon, right before I, my eyes shut, said, if you see a bright light in a tunnel, don't go in it. Oh, my goodness. It was very encouraging. Yeah, right? But that seems to be the typical explanation that you just read there for a ghost, someone who dies in a violent or confusing way, or someone dies with unfinished business to take care of, or spirits who don't quite understand they're dead yet. Like you said, TV and the internet might be giving us a skewed version of ghost encounters. What types of things are people seeing when the cameras aren't rolling? And by that, I don't mean explain what they're seeing, but what are the typical visual stimuli that people are getting? Yeah, let's focus for a moment just on the experiential data. And you're right, there is a discrepancy between those media ghosts and what alleged witnesses are reporting. Believe it or not, I found an old essay from 1943 that I think is probably the most descriptive work I've ever seen. It was written by, of all people, a British mathematician and physicist named George Terrell. And he took it on himself to gather data about ghost accounts, but he did it in a very scientific and organized way, I think. Here's a quote from Terrell. Do you believe in ghosts is one of the most ambiguous questions which could be asked. Do you believe that people sometimes experience apparitions? The answer is that they certainly do. He actually preferred to use the term apparition most of the time because, according to him, the definition is that an apparition is just talking about an occurrence or an appearance or an event. And when you use the word ghost, you're actually implying that there's a personality there. So there's a difference between the words, according to Terrell. So apparition is a little bit more scientific and ghost is a little bit more of a loaded term. Yeah, and it doesn't presuppose a real entity. To say it's a ghost is really making a lot of assumptions about the phenomenon. From Terrell's large case file, he did find commonalities among the cases. And by the way, he also claims to have included only reputable witnesses in his studies. Okay. So pretty scientific. He created what he called the perfect apparition. (laughs) And this was his theoretical collage or kind of a melting pot of all the cases that he studied. Several aspects were common. For Terrell, the perfect apparition, he said, while standing beside a normal human being, would exhibit the following. So that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to compare a ghost to a normal person in the same setting. So that was kind of his experimental control then? Comparing the alleged ghost to a real human at the same place and same time. Right. And so here's here's the commonalities he found. And he just remembered this is just kind of a a melting pot of everything that he, he said that he found in a lot of different cases. The first one is both the human and the apparition would appear equally real and physical, even though the apparition may be a little bit transparent sometimes. All right. Uh, Both could be viewed from any distance or angle chosen. Hmm. The apparition might speak to us or respond, but only briefly. And I hadn't thought about that. That's true. You know, when you hear the ghost shows, you don't hear these long monologues that ghosts go into. It's just (laughs) very brief. No Shakespearean monologues, right? (laughs) If a mirror were present, both figures would be reflected. So they're not vampires, I guess. That's good. (laughs) 
both figures for another would, episode yeah. vampires for another episode that sounds good both <laughs> figures would cast shadows even the ghost if the apparition was wearing a rose we might smell it hmm. we would hear sounds associated with a real person such as shuffling stomping or something like that we might feel its touch and it would turn its head to follow our movement Okay. In addition to clothing, other accessories might be present, such as a cane, a watch, a suitcase, or even a pet. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. The apparition might manipulate real objects. If we tried to hold on to the apparition, we might feel it or our hands might pass through it. We might feel a coldness near the figure. In time, which is usually seconds, the apparition would fade, vanish, or pass through the wall. Or the this ceiling a, or something. A long list. Yeah. He was very thorough in what he did, it sounded like. And amazingly, Terrell's findings aren't that different from what modern accounts are, from not the TV people, but the people who supposedly do the allegedly legitimate work with ghosts. Okay. 80, 80 years after Terrell. So that's the experimental side of the apparitions. It's always good, though, to start with what scripture says about a phenomenon. That is so true. And unfortunately, by our culture standards, that's the most controversial statement we'll make. <laughs> Experiences are important, but what scripture says always takes priority. In Malachi 3.10, it talks about this. Put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So that's just one of the times God says in scripture to test me. I mean, really make an experience out of this and know that scripture is right. And the same will apply to all the paranormal things we explore. We certainly want to note what's being experienced, but always from the viewpoint of what God's word says about it. And the Bible does address spirits, doesn't it? Yeah, there are a few places that present ghosts directly. Uh, those who look for apparitions in Scripture, they often look at the book of 1 Samuel. If you know the story, this was when Saul was fighting with the Philistines, and he's not getting a lot of response from God at this time. You know, he's had a mm -hmm. few problems with sin and such. So he decides to take matters into his own hands. And even though he's banned mediums and necromancers from the kingdom, he actually goes to the neighborhood medium in Endor and convinces her to channel the ghost of his departed prophet Samuel. Right. And so the Endor medium does her little act and, you know, does the seance or whatever. But she actually seems terrified when the alleged ghost of Samuel suddenly just appears there. And the spirit's first words are, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Do you think it was really Samuel's ghost? Well, theologians differ over the interpretation. Some claim that the spirit was just a demon impersonating Samuel. Uh, the spirit does, though, give a stern rebuke to Saul, which sounds like that he's still prophesying for God. So I don't know. Another view is that it's a, a very rare act that God did just allow Samuel's spirit to be brought from Abraham's bosom. That's what you know heaven was back in the Old Testament. And okay. he did it just for the special pronouncement to the ungodly king. Okay. In either case, though, Samuel wasn't just hovering around waiting to be summoned. This appears to be a, a very unique situation. And in no way, I don't think it justifies the concept of ghost or communicating with the dead. Yeah. In fact, scripture expressly forbids any attempts to contact mm -hmm. the dead. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12 says, There shall not be found among you a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And a necromancer, that's someone who allegedly communicates with the dead, a medium. That doesn't leave much room for an alternative opinion there. So the question then becomes, would God temporarily break his own command for some purpose? Yeah, we don't have a good precedent for that in scripture. As a rule, straightforward commandments aren't negated by situations. Yeah. When Saul does that, I mean, he knows that he's disobeying the commands that God has given yeah. him. So he's like circumventing the way God does it to try to get his own answer from God. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like we do that a lot even in our like pursuit of supernatural things. But yeah, and look what he got into. <laughs> yeah. And and man, 
even if it frightened the medium. <laughs> yeah. The New Testament also has some references to ghostly spirits, but these are only in the context of colloquial beliefs. Remember when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, their mistaken assumption was that, oh, it's a ghost coming at us. Yeah, and that goes back to the fact that ghosts are folkloric across all kinds of cultures and time frames. When Peter was miraculously released from prison, those hiding in Mary's house mistakenly believed at first that it was an apparition. But you know, nowhere does scripture indicate that our spirits remain on earth or connected to this physical realm after death. The consensus of most of God's word seems to be that at death, we're just instantaneously in eternity, either with Christ in heaven or separated from him in hell. Even to the thief on the cross next to him, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It didn't sound yeah. like his spirit was going to hang around or wait for very right. long. Which is hopeful. Mm -hmm. um, in Luke 16, 26, Jesus is giving the account of the rich man who died and went to hell and Lazarus who died and went to heaven. The rich man wanted to go back to warn his brothers to change their ways. In the story, Jesus has Abraham saying, quote, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This sounds like there's no choice of staying on earth or going back or moving from realm to realm. No, I don't think so. So with lack of biblical information on ghosts specifically, let's see what it says indirectly. What does scripture say about our soul's existence after death? And certainly the question isn't about whether existence continues yes. after death. The Bible is very clear that the continuity of our soul, I mean, that's that's the whole hope of Christianity right there. Yes. Um, our point of contention is the nature of the afterlife. I think Paul settles the issue in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. This is one of the clearest descriptions of our supernatural composition, present and future. I'll read the whole passage. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found unclothed. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's a very descriptive metaphor. Yeah. Paul says that I inhabit my body just as I might dwell in a tent. I'm not simply a physical machine like Darwinian evolution would predict. Only my tent is the mm -hmm. earthly physical part. So the real me is inside somewhere. And whatever electrochemical mechanisms are at work in my brain and however they interface with my real conscience self, whatever that me is, isn't totally equated with my physical body. Right. And in other scriptures, that non-material component is identified as a soul or spirit. So I don't have a soul. Rather, I am a soul who lives in a body. Yes. Then Paul mixes in an even more intimate metaphor. I am clothed with a body, and it's conceivable that I could remove the clothing and still be a conscious mm -hmm. entity. Yeah. He quickly adds, though, that that would not be the ideal situation. Although God and his angels may ex exist as pure spirit, he has made human spirits to best reside in a body, even in eternity. Yeah. And if it concerns anyone that your physical body doesn't seem to fit the idea of eternity, <laughs> there is good news. In the future, my painful, deteriorating clothing will one day be replaced with brand new apparel. So I'm glad for that. And although we can't fully understand the details, I think my new suit will still look like me. But it'll be immortal and made for living in the supernatural realms. Those laws of entropy won't apply to me anymore, thankfully. Yeah. I've heard some Christians blend the ideas from this passage with ghosts, and they say ghosts are human souls that are in purgatory. Yeah, some of it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That purgatory thing, until you realize it isn't anywhere in the Bible. That actually should be a red flag when that yeah. happens. The idea of limbo or purgatory is, is actually a throwback to some ancient European and even some Islamic mythologies. Wow. And it seems like by the Middle Ages, some of the church had compromised a lot with the pagan folklore about the spirits. 
And as the belief was refined over the next few centuries, it just kind of got Christianized. All those pagan restless spirits now became Christianized ghosts. I know of some mainline Christians who believe they've been in contact with a deceased loved one. That survey you referenced earlier, as much as 20% of evangelicals admit that. And yeah. many of those base their belief on the Samuel account. I know personally of at least two cases where um, a very strong believer claims to have been comforted in some way by the spirit of a deceased relative or a friend. And both of these people are just solid, biblical in their theology, and both more or less see that their experiences were blessings from God. So what's your take on that? Well, that's a hard one. I suppose my first inclination is to be a little leery when we set experiences over biblical principles or even put them on an equal plane. I also think that there are so many ways that God can comfort and bless us that don't contradict his biblical system. Do you think that sounds about right? Yeah, I think this could be an example of what John was teaching new believers when faced with experiential evidence that raises questions. Here's okay. his advice in 1 John chapter 4. This is verse 1 through 3. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I like this. Okay, but I'm going to let John, I'm going to let you take the heat for making the decision here. <laughs> no, I'll let this John take the heat for making the decision. Oh, okay. Because he's already said it. So it's I'll just true. go with him. But yeah, <laughs> and I'm not singling out individuals here. I don't want to do that. But according to John, after encountering a questionable spirit, no matter how godly it seems, yeah. if the experience does anything to downgrade that total comprehensive biblical view of Jesus, it's a bad spirit. And I think we can say it's not what it claims to be, even if it does seem like it's your godly Aunt Josephine or something that's giving you a warm, cozy feeling. It's it's kind of confusing. It can be. And we may have just made a lot of people mad there. Um, yeah. But this makes me think of that verse we've mentioned previously, the second Corinthians eleven fourteen, about Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me think about how these experiences can be a hook or a seed that can turn us away from the truth. What if there's no real communication, though, and a person just sees a specter of a grandpa, like on episode one? What do you think about that? I think there's some more questions we get asked then. For example, does the event leave the observer with a feeling of peace? Very few ghost encounters that I've heard of do that. Almost all experiencers have some kind of fear or confusion after the event. That doesn't seem like something God would break one of his rules to endorse. No, I don't think so. And we could also ask, did the worldview of the observer become less biblical the account you mentioned from episode one, this man claimed that he had to rethink all that he was taught about biblical view of the afterlife. Just the idea of spirits staying on earth, that denies the whole idea of what scripture says about heaven, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Do you think it's possible that some ghosts are spirits of unbelievers and that they're walking the earth as kind of their personal hell or punishment? I've heard Christians claim that too. I mean, that does sound like it would make a good movie, but I don't think that seems to fit with scripture either, does no. it? It's no. just another angle of the purgatory concept. Um, there's an aspect of hell which is to be completely separated from God. And even on this earth and even in the bad parts of this earth experience that we have, there are still beautiful reflections of God mm -hmm. and we're not really separated from him. Yeah, that's right. So ghosts are dead human spirits, yes or no? I'm going to err on the side of scripture and say no. Okay. Even just a few maybe in special cases? Mm. Unless somebody can explain how God could firmly forbid contacting the dead and then break his own commandment. So mm. if for no other reason than that, then no, I don't think so. And I think Paul makes it clear, away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that kind of sums it up. Okay. So, if not the souls of departed humans, then where does this leave us with all those alleged experiences with apparitions? 
I'll use a phrase I hear in almost every paranormal show. They're seeing something. (laughs) You're right. Whether it's Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, whatever, that seems to be kind of the mantra of all the paranormal experiencers. So let's dig even deeper into this. First of all, we're not naive. When you start gathering stories about UFOs, ghosts, Bigfoot, anything paranormal, spoiler, most of the cases aren't really paranormal. Wait, did you say most of the cases aren't really paranormal? Yes. But this podcast is about the paranormal. What are you trying to do here? Trust me and hang on. Uh, In my book, I use three classifications for alleged paranormal phenomena. The first one is mistaken identification. The second, directed human activity. And the third one is observationally accurate events. So those sound real academic right now, but let me explain it. The first category, mistaken identification. Did you know most experiences in the paranormal are not real and they're just something that can be explained? So I know that sounds odd on a paranormal podcast, (laughs) but, uh, you know, someone sees the planet Venus in full phase and in close orbit and thinks, oh, it's a UFO. And actually, okay. that's that's the number one most common report of a UFO is the planet Venus. So Get out. there you go. Okay. Or they see some overexposed photo and imagine a ghost image on it mm. somewhere. Or you pass by a tree going 70 miles an hour. And for that split second, it looks just like Sasquatch standing there. Yes, so it does. <laughs> Scrooge was absolutely right. An undigested bit of beef might make me sick enough to see all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so we humans are notoriously good at exaggerating and seeing what's not really there, aren't we? We are experts, but that's actually a good thing most of the time. Our brains kind of like to fill in the blanks of all our sensory data, and God made us that way, so our senses kind of make more sense to us. We innately try to make our world make sense, even when things don't make sense. Yeah, there's a good example of this, pareidolia, which is like seeing an image of the Virgin Mary on Uh a piece of toast. Oh, yeah, exactly. Our minds tend to find patterns in random data points just because that's that's the way God made our brains. Yeah, I found William Shatner's profile on a potato chip once. Oh, stop it. Did you save it? Yeah, for about 10 years. (laughs) I, I tried unsuccessfully to sell it on eBay. Well, that fits you and is very strange. Um, Most scenarios are simply what you call mistaken identifications. Yeah. And a lot of paranormal researchers will tell you that. They claim that well over half of the stuff that they get reports on are just mistakes. You know, it's people think they see something, but they really don't. Okay. This might be a good chance to apply the pickle principle. Uh, I won't detail it right now. And if the listeners want the full story, they can check out the website. But the pickle principle is kind of a form of composition fallacy. And I don't want to get too heady and academic here, but all that okay. means is that you can't always judge the whole by a part. And just because most alleged paranormal phenomena can be explained, it doesn't mean that they all can be explained. That's oh, well. all that means. Yeah, that's well put. Um, and in this case, just because most apparitions can be explained naturally, it doesn't necessarily mean that they all can. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. And since we've already stepped into this bog of formal logic, we may as well wade in a little bit deeper. <laughs> yes, we want to avoid another logical fallacy, the appeal to ignorance argument. The statement, no one has ever proven that ghosts exist, so they must not be real, is just as invalid as no one has ever proven that ghosts do not exist, so they must be real. Yeah. And also, as most scientists will tell you, it's easier to falsify a hypothesis than to verify it. For example, how would we verify the statement, there are no ghosts? If we searched every place on Earth, some skeptic would probably come up and and still say, well, you looked at the wrong time, or you didn't look on the planet Mars or something. (laughs) So it's a no win. And in any practical sense, the statement can't be verified at all. But if one single genuine ghost could be observed, then that statement is effectively falsified. You can falsify something much easier than verify. And and this is why one popular paranormal researcher said skeptics have to be right all the time. Believers only have to be right once. 
And that, that's very true. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Yeah, one single Bigfoot captured would blow away all the skeptics. And then you have your second category, directed human activity. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, that includes mostly just plain old fraud. Oh, someone okay. someone wants to dominate TikTok for a few days, so they post a fake ghost photo. Or someone wants to improve the local tourism, so <laughs> they invent some kind of haunted hotel or a swamp creature or something like that. And again, I'm not describing every case, but we know it happens. Yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be malicious either. I launched a balloon once with an internal light just to see if I could mimic a <laughs> UFO. And later I started thinking, oh, I wonder if that might have disturbed some of my neighbors out downwind <laughs> of me somewhere. Oh man. Um, this is another significant proportion of the alleged experiences. Yeah, when you put those two categories together, that's the majority of the alleged paranormal encounters. They're just either mistaken identities or human activity of some sort. Okay. But here's the thing. Most reliable researchers of paranormal things still end up with a, a small proportion of cases that can't be explained. Yeah, some researchers call these residuals. Those are the ones that they really like to spend time on because obviously you've eliminated the other two categories and there either could be actually something there. So those are the real deal. Well, that's why I use the term observationally accurate instead of the real deal. It simply means it's not the first two options and what the observer witnessed was true to the sensory perception of it. For example, a door really did open and close with nothing around, or a boomerang-shaped object hovered over my house, or a 10-foot hairy creature ran across the road. Now, notice in all these examples, I'm not claiming it was a ghost or a Bigfoot or a UFO, but that the sensory input was true. So okay. it physically was what it appeared to be in some way. And if other people were to be there, they would have experienced the same perceptions. Mm. And you see, this this does leave the paranormal explanation still on the table. And also, in this proportion of cases, many note that they seem to be qualitatively different. It's not like we just have to do more research and collect more data to find that it's just a hoax or a misidentification. There's something intuitive that just says this could be real. Oh, And one more important fact, I've been using the term small proportion to describe this group. Even though most accounts do turn out to be mistaken or hoax, there are a lot of reports out there. It's amazing. UFO okay. cases now in the hundreds of thousands in the United States and, you know, ghosts probably even more than that. So that small proportion we're talking about of unexplained is a huge number of real cases most of the time. And it also, again, goes across all types of cultures and continents. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So I think I just heard you say that in a few cases, ghosts could be real. Uh, I didn't exactly say that, but let's do a little reasoning here. And let's just assume for now that a phenomena has a cause that's not in this natural realm. And we're making the assumption that it could be paranormal. And we're just assuming right now. So Just assuming. Yeah, just assuming. <laughs> so remember from episode one, we define paranormal as something that could be supernatural, or it could be just caused by physical laws that we just aren't aware of right now. So okay. let's, start, let's start by asking, could apparitions be some strange physical phenomenon that's yet to be explored? I mean, every modern day ghost hunter show uses a plethora of gadgets and electromagnetic mm -hmm. detectors, heat detector, infrared cameras. They look for physical causes like energy fields and ectoplasm, whatever yeah. that is. <laughs> I know. I want to know what that is. Um, so what lives on after death is just some physical energy or something, not supernatural, just something we've yet to discover. Kind of like the spook lights or the Marfa lights. People see them, but we don't know what they are yet. Yeah, that's what they believe. And actually, some atheists believe that, too. They they believe that there is a ghost, but it's not like it's an afterlife kind of spiritual things. But let's explore another alternative. If it's paranormal but not natural, is a supernatural cause possible? That's the most radical statement you've made so far. You bet it is. And I'm out on a limb now. So hang on. I'm still just speculating, still just assuming. When you say supernatural, you're talking biblical supernatural, not some weird mystical ghost story idea. Yes, and that's very important. I'm glad you brought that up. 
when I cross that line and consider whether something might be supernatural, I can't go wild and just start presuming all kinds of weird supernatural possibilities. Yes, that's what we called the mosaic view earlier in this Uh series. Every paranormal category is in its own little world or compartment. Yeah, and I believe there is absolutely only one true supernatural, and that's the one described in Scripture, and the one we've just spent four episodes kind of laying out. So at this point, we've narrowed down the explanations considerably. Yeah, and eliminated a lot of things, too. Remember, though, the Ephesians hypothesis from the last episode, and just to refresh the listener's memory, Paul lays out a very strong hypothesis in Ephesians 6.12, and it has five assumptions. Yes, let me summarize those. First, there is an unseen realm beyond the one in which we live. Second, spirits from that unseen realm can interact with our world. Third, our primary struggle is with fallen spirits from this unseen realm. Four, fallen spirits are evil, scheming, and set on opposing God and keeping us from truth. And five, we can and should be prepared to recognize and withstand these fallen spirits. Is that about right? Yeah. Okay. Let's apply the Ephesians hypothesis specifically here. Does the Ephesians hypothesis have explanatory power regarding what people experience in those creepy, disturbing apparitions? And this is what I would encourage listeners to do also, anytime you cross into that supernatural zone. So here we go. Let's crawl really deep down this rabbit hole now. (laughs) Since we're discussing ghosts, let's keep on using the ghost phenomena kind of as our test subject for this, so to speak. So we'll start by asking this question. Could the sensory phenomena reported in ghostly encounters be associated with entities from the unseen realm? And I'm talking the biblical ones we've examined in previous episodes. Now, immediately, I'm going to eliminate some supernatural entities because it, it doesn't seem logical that righteous spirits would act the way we hear of ghost acting. Okay. And right, the unfallen B'nai Elohim serve God and wouldn't be a source for fear and confusion. Wouldn't seem that way. So that leaves only the fallen ones or demons we've we've ended up calling them. And I know that may seem extreme to some, but again, keep hanging on. Well, so far you're in good company. Christian apologist Ron Rhodes notes, people sometimes genuinely encounter a spirit entity, though not a dead human. Some people encounter demonic spirits who may mimic dead people in order to deceive the living. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so here we go. Let's see if the data points line up with what the Ephesians hypothesis says about Satan and his followers. And remember, hypothesis testing is just investigating whether the experience meets the predictions of a hypothesis. So let's start with one of the most obvious experiential aspects of alleged ghost encounters. And it's this one. Those who witness apparitions experience sensory rich phenomena that seem to have physical reality. Mm-hmm. Okay, from the Ephesians hypothesis, which again is based on Ephesians 6, we know that demons can interact with the physical world and they can affect human perceptions. Here's a quote from Martin Luther who had his share of demonic encounters. Satan is well able to affect all the senses so that a man would swear he did see, hear, touch a thing which notwithstanding he doth not. Could you do that with a German accent? No. (laughs) Oh, okay. Here's another one from Augustine. What men can do with real colors and substances, the demons can very easily do by showing unreal forms. And did you hear how these are worded? Both of these gentlemen hint at a point that we may need to ponder. Do demons put an image in someone's mind or do they cause an actual physical event that people perceive? Hmm. For example... Can a demon affect a camera or an electromagnetic detector, or does it produce a real phenomena that can be recorded on these devices? And I know this is kind of esoteric right now. I only bring this up because if someone thinks that one of these options isn't possible, then the other one probably could be. Or they both could be. Yeah, they both could be. So there may be some clues to this in the account of the demon-possessed man that we talked about in episode three, the ones that Jesus liberated. 
The indwelling demons, if you remember, obviously controlled the actions of the men uh, to the extent that they, the men had no control. Yeah. And the demons controlled their speech, which was essentially controlling their minds, I would assume. Yeah. However, the demons also gave the man superhuman strength because it says he broke the shackles and he couldn't be chained. So that sounds like something that's beyond just what these men could do. And that doesn't sound like a mind game to me. Witnesses could see this happening. Yeah, several witnesses at the same time. So I'm not going to take the stance that demons just affect the minds. It's not like some mass hallucination thing. I think that in a limited sense, they actually can sometimes affect real physical things in our natural world. And I believe we have a scriptural precedent for that, too. Yeah. In episode three, we discussed Satan controlling the wind that killed Job's children Uh and the demons physically manifesting in the herd of pigs. And with both Terrell's perfect apparition and with modern accounts, I think demons could certainly do either. They could deceive minds or to some extent manipulate matter and energy. And when you have both possibilities, I believe you can explain most any apparition that's out there. Could that be the case with alleged poltergeist where objects are moved or thrown around? Yeah, poltergeist literally means noisy ghost. And in a limited sense, I believe a demon can cause these phenomena. It doesn't seem to be a hallucination. A real physical object moves in a permanent, measurable sense in some way. It would seem feasible then that a demon could move the needle on a dial or the planchette of a Ouija board or even manifest the sound waves of a voice. Yeah, I think so. If it's a permanent observable change, it's physical, I think, and it's not just a a mind thing going on. Yeah. Uh, One of the latest fads in ghost hunting, this is incredible. It's an electronic voice phenomenon, EVP. Uh. You'll hear it on all the ghost shows. Uh, You can buy these things. I've seen them on Amazon. Uh, They call them ghost boxes sometimes. And they're pre-programmed with words and phrases that ghosts are likely to need to say. Wait, did you say likely need to say? Yeah. So it's it's kind of loaded up front, isn't it? There's all kinds of these little devices. Some make random sounds that occasionally sound like a phrase, you know, like, uh, yes, no, murder, help me, get out. But supposedly they're designed to make it easy for a spirit to kind of nudge that little machine circuit or whatever and make it say something. And most of the time it will say something. So if you just let it sit there, it'll it'll start squawking at you. I mean, that doesn't sound very scientific to me, but um, it also kind of just sounds like a high tech Ouija board. Yeah, exactly. You ask the spirit a question. And the ghost box just starts spitting out phrases that, uh, you know, there's audio pareidolia again, too, because you you could hear just a static or something. And most people think, oh, I think I heard it say I'm I'm a ghost or I'm restless or whatever. So the ghost hunters are going out of their way to invite a spirit to communicate. That sounds dangerous and creepy to me. Aren't we supposed Mm -hmm. to resist the devil and demons? That's in James 4, 7. That's a very good point. Using an EVP device or a Ouija board, going to an abandoned hotel at midnight, Hmm. asking a ghost to speak to you, setting up EM sensors. What's wrong with this picture? It certainly doesn't seem like resistance. It seems like an unabandoned pursuit. Yeah, exactly. I'm almost certain that if you literally invite a spirit, there's going to be one at your doorstep in a nanosecond willing to take you up on that invitation. This this really isn't rocket science. Yeah, it's not always good to seek out that experience. Let's look at another aspect of ghosts, and let's do this one backwards. First, here's a prediction from the Ephesians hypothesis. Demons would be motivated to deceive people by creating apparitions. So okay. is, there any, is there any reason you can think of that a demon would waste its time haunting someone? Yeah, I can easily think of several. We've already seen how a simple, innocent apparition of a grandfather pretty much destroyed a man's biblical worldview. They changed the concept of the biblical afterlife. Yeah, even the ones portrayed on TV aren't, they aren't even close to a biblical heaven or hell. I don't think I've ever heard of a ghost encouraging someone to get closer to Jesus. (laughs) Or or repent, obey God, go deeper into God's word. That's just not big on ghost priorities, I don't think. Um, And if true believers get pulled into accepting all of this, they pretty much have to deny much of scripture. 
And that's the bottom line, isn't it? Any phenomenon presented by a demon obviously originates from the father of lies. And I'm thinking ghostly deceptions are just so straightforward that that's probably an entry-level job for a demon Mm. right there. Probably so. The messages of virtually every apparition are these. Biblical views of the afterlife are wrong. The afterlife is a vague, irrational realm. Deceased humans are not very happy. They are confused, angry, striving, or bizarre. And four, the spiritual reality is new age, mystic, occult, or pantheistic. Um, And none of that lines up with scripture. No, none of it. Here's another testable observation. Apparitions vary widely in appearance and behavior. Why Mm -hmm. is that? If every apparition was like Marley's ghost and just kind of materialized and shook its chains and moaned, it sure would be simpler for ghost hunters. <laughs> but no, you get every variation possible. Deceased loved one, a scary figure, historic figure, a dead pet, a ghost train, a voice, a touch, moving objects, electromagnetic readings, da 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 So according to scripture and the Ephesians hypothesis, that shouldn't surprise us because Satan works in the ways most effective with the individuals being deceived. It's kind of like tailored to the person. That goes back to the schemes and wiles we discussed. Satan is not haphazard. He is intent on success and whatever it takes to deceive. He'll do it. And that usually means gearing the deception to the individual. Humans are not one size fits all. No, an apparition that works with one person may not work with another. And allow me to make another observation here. Apparitions, as well as all the other phenomena we'll talk about, are usually just what the observer expected. Mm. Have you ever noticed that? And I don't think that's a psychological thing like some skeptics claim. Yeah, that list of worldwide ghosts that I read earlier and mispronounced. (laughs) Why did the Japanese ghost hunters find a different type of apparition, even here in America? It seems if you're looking for a particular manifestation, that's what you would find. And except on TV, you rarely hear a ghost hunter say, wow, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) And they should have because most of them claim to be psychic. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Another data point to think about, um, ghosts seem to circumvent physical laws. They appear, disappear, and pass through solid objects. We would expect that, wouldn't we? I mean, demons reside in the supernatural realm, but they can interact with ours when they want to and when God allows. Their manifestations wouldn't necessarily be subject to our physical laws. They themselves aren't subject to our physical laws unless they want it to look that way. And if any of our listeners are confused about that, I encourage you to go back and listen to our other episodes. We kind of get into the supernatural realm outside of our natural realm. Um, But these ghosts would not necessarily be detected by cameras or other devices unless it helps with the deception. Exactly. And that's confusing to a lot of ghost hunters. You know, they say, well, I can't get a picture or I did get a picture or the device does work or it doesn't work. But I think that's pretty much up to the demon that's behind it, too. I think that explains why apparitions are so flirtatious and elusive, too. No one ever gets that definitive proof of a ghost or a spirit. That's what all the ghost chasers are after, anyway. Right. And that's a crucial point. Demons control the stage. And I believe every aspect of their apparition is under their control, as God permits, of course. But they provide just enough to deceive, yet not really enough to show their hand in what they're doing. So here's another observation that deceives many people. Ghosts seem to possess knowledge about the life of the alleged deceased from which they're supposedly derived and about loved ones, associates, etc. And that's what makes it so convincing for people. That's the typical scenario when in a seance, isn't it? Yeah. I'm pretty sure most mediums are fakes. Well, a lot of them, but it's certainly possible for a demon to use a medium. Mm -hmm. Once again, someone invites a spirit. And although neither Satan nor his demons are omniscient, they've obviously observed earthly events possibly in greater detail than we humans have. And they certainly have insight into our affairs, I would think. And I don't think it would take much to mimic a dead person in detail if needed. If demons can have fun, this must be a lot of fun for them. Also, this is a trap that I've personally seen believers fall into. They say, it has to be my uncle so-and-so because the ghost knew things only my uncle would know. No wonder God's word so strongly states, 
stay away from mediums. Don't try to contact the dead. Yeah. Okay. So we've been talking about a lot of different things. Let's kind of bring it back and wrap it up a little bit. Um, Hebrews 9.27 tells us it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. As enemies of God, the devil and his demons would have every reason to cast doubt on God's word and its warnings about future judgment. Getting people to believe in ghosts automatically forces them to reject key Bible verses. The good news in the midst of this dark reality is indeed the good news, the gospel. The most deceptive demon activity is no match whatsoever for the truth and the gospel message. Demons can work only where there is ignorance of Christ's work. And that's why it's important to read God's word, live an obedient, prayerful life, heed the warnings of scripture, and resist the devil and everything related to him. In our next episode, another perplexing piece of the paranormal. Do you have any ideas what it's going to be? Mm, yes. Okay, we're going to keep it a surprise. Thanks for listening. If you would like to comment or ask questions, send us an email at godintheparanormal at gmail.com. You can also get more info at our website, thinkingaboutthebible.com. We hope you found this podcast useful and interesting. If so, please share it with others. And please subscribe here on this YouTube page and hit that, that thumbs up button. Goodbye for now.